my name is Barry K. Aloha. Welcome to my short series podcast all about my journey as a non-directed or altruistic kidney donor. This is my first podcast. Bear with me. I have no clue what I'm doing. So <laughs> with that in mind, um, I wanted to document this journey because it's not something that you hear about all the time. Uh, there's a very small percentage of people who are non-directed kidney donors. The vast majority of them, as it turns out, are college-age white males in the United States. I'm not 100% sure why that is, considering that you are not legally allowed to get paid to donate an organ in the United States. Um, unlike, you know, donating your eggs when you're a young woman in college, you get see you see these ads in the back of the newspaper all the time. Like, hey, are you a young, healthy college-educated woman and you need to make your rent money this month? Sell your eggs. I almost did that in college. I actually had quite a few friends who did. Uh, no shade whatsoever. But um, anyway, all this as to why these particular uh, donations uh, for kidneys are more represented by the young white male population? No clue. Anyway, I am a 36-year-old woman of some color um, living in the United States. And I started my journey to be a non-directed kidney donor many years ago. Um, I've been an organ donor on my driver's license since I got a driver's license when I was 16. So that was always sort of a, a given. And I've always been a huge supporter of, of being an organ donor. Um, but then I started hearing a lot of stories about, about how, how the quality of life for people waiting for a kidney donation is affected. And I'm not trying to speak for people who are, um, you know, suffering from kidney diseases. I'm not trying to say that their quality of life is in any way less fulfilling than others. But there are certain challenges that are inherent to having um, a terminal or severe or chronic um, kidney disease or a disease that affects the kidneys. And I started reading a bunch of these stories um, and and it was heartbreaking. Um, you know, because there's, especially if you have to schedule your life around dialysis. Dialysis is, it's a, a really, it's a big undertaking. It, it basically involves getting your blood recycled and cleaned on a regular basis. And it, um, you know, it's not impossible and it's not that the facilities don't exist, but it is, it does take up a massive chunk of your day. From what I understand, it can take anywhere from four to 12 hours to go through a full cycle. Um, and that's a lot. That's a lot of playing Candy Crush in a in a recliner chair waiting for your blood to get cleaned up because your kidneys simply are not able to do it by themselves. So anyway, I was reading a lot of these stories. Um, and as an organ donor already, I thought, well, you know what? Is, is, there, is there anything that I can do? Um, not going to lie, the movie Seven Pounds also had something to do with... Uh, why I wanted to start this journey. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen it out there. It's a movie starring Will Smith, where he essentially donates um, seven organs. Spoiler alert, he uh, takes his own life in order for these organs to be donated. Um, and I was like, that seems a little severe. I may be a nihilist, but you know, I have my limits. <laughs> um, but uh, I looked into what organs you can donate while still living. And you can donate pieces of your liver. Your liver does grow back. Um, that seemed a little bit more than I really wanted to do. Also, I drink, so I don't know how viable my liver really is. But it's not its not something I've written off. I may end up doing that sometime down the line. 
Uh, but the big one that I noticed was being a living kidney donor, especially because you can live a perfectly full life with only one kidney. There's a whole movement called Share Your Spare, if you're interested in looking that up. Um, and so I started reading more and more and more about it, um, and especially reading stories from people who have donated either to a family member or a coworker or somebody that they didn't know at all. And um, so there's nobody in my immediate family or in my immediate circle of friends who is in dire need of a kidney. So I've never had that um, scenario pop up as a possibility. Um, or at least if it has, it's been somebody who, with whom I do not match blood types. And I know that there's paired donation and, and we can get into that at a, a later episode. But um, the non-directed donation, I was like, that is something that I can do. One of the other things that contributed to uh, me deciding to start this journey is looking at the recovery process. Um, it takes about two weeks, generally, before you're sort of back up and running to almost full capacity, but you're not supposed to lift any heavy objects. There, there are limitations. But for the most part, you, you get back to normal pretty quickly as a donor. And the person who receives your kidney is generally feeling extremely better within like 48 hours of getting the kidney donation, which just warms my heart. But even in, in looking at the recovery process, though it is short, um, it does, you know, you do have to take into account who depends on you. You know, like if you are a mother of four, you probably don't have two weeks to, you know, lie around without being able to pick up heavy objects. Like that would probably be. Uh, a, a considering factor if you wanted to do this. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that if you are a mother of four, but there are, you do have to sort of weigh the, weigh the pros and cons of not uh, being able to have full mobility as soon as you're out of that operating room. And I am single. I have no children. I have no pets. Um, I have a lovely roommate who is very willing to uh, do the heavy lifting for me for six to eight weeks. I don't foresee any heavy lifting needed, but you know, you never know. <laughs> um, so really, I'm kind of in an ideal situation to be a donor. I There's nobody who relies on my income that would be in any way negatively affected if my income were to be decreased while I am, um, you know, recovering from this process. I'm a voice actor. I work from home, even in this pandemic. By the way, it is <laughs> probably should have mentioned the date. Uh, today is December 7th, 2020, and by all accounts, I should be donating my kidney in a little over a month. We'll get to that. We'll, we'll circle back to that. Probably should have mentioned that at the top of the episode, but here we go. Told you this is my first time doing a podcast. Uh, anyway, so I'm actually kind of an ideal candidate for this. I am generally healthy. Um, I, I have income that I can make while literally lying in bed. <laughs> I can wear pajamas to work because I am a voice actor. Um, and I've always been very thrifty. I'm not a spend, I'm not a clothes horse. I, I tend to be pretty frugal with my money. Not crazy tightwad, but, but frugal. And so I have a pretty, I have a pretty low cost of living when it comes to that, despite living in New York City, which has one of the highest costs of living. Um, there are programs in place that I have discovered through my journey of, of getting this set up that um, you can apply for uh, preemptively when you're about to donate your kidney to say, hey, I'm doing this non-directed donation. This is how much money I am currently making. And so they can kind of, it's sort of like unemployment insurance, but for organ donors. So I do plan to apply for that. 
Um, so I will have a little bit of help, but I also have a healthy savings account from having worked on cruise ships for many years. I've been able to build up a nice little, you know, feather bed of uh, in case something terrible happens, I do have money to fall back on. So all this to say, I am a pretty ideal candidate for um, being a living kidney donor. And uh, one of the things that held me back for several years was thinking, okay, well, if I do this, I'm going to be sort of out of commission for a while. And as a musical theater actor, you know, I'm constantly auditioning and I'm constantly auditioning for this and that and the other and for live shows and this, that. Um, how many times can I say this, that in one minute? Let's find out. <laughs> um, but with the onset of the pandemic and the subsequent lockdown and the loss of 99% of all live performances, I thought, you know what? This is kind of perfect because there's no, really no chance of losing out on any performing opportunities as it stands because there aren't any performing opportunities. So with all of the planets in alignment, the syzygy was <laughs> in place. And uh, so I finally got back up and uh, started this process to be registered as a living kidney donor. So if, if anybody's interested, that's sort of the whole reason I'm doing this podcast is hopefully to inspire others to do the same thing, um, to give you a very honest first person account of, of what this journey is like and what challenges I may meet along the way. Um, so I'll start from the beginning. So step one for me was to just Google it. I really didn't know where to begin. Uh, I started following a few kidney donation accounts on Instagram, and that was actually really helpful. They gave a lot of good resources and a lot of good um, first-person accounts as well. But I registered with the National Kidney Registry, which is the NKR. Um, and so they were able to give me a listing of local hospitals who are um, part of that network. And I started my process. Now, I had to go through, unfortunately, three different hospital chains in order to finally get somebody who would move my application along. Uh, shout out to you, Cedar sinai for doing absolutely fuck all. <laughs> um, I've had to go through the same process three different times. And the first two times I did it over the course of several years, I, I had to keep trying to track people down to further my application. Um, and it always stopped right before I was supposed to meet with a social worker. So the first step is to, you know, do all of your your personal data and your blood type and your medical history and all that. And they pass it along to the donation coordinators and they ask you a few more questions. And, and a lot of it is they ask you why you want to do this, because it's, you know, it's not common for somebody to want to donate a kidney to somebody they don't know. Um, and understandably so, because I'm sure there's you can run into some uh, some issues with somebody who may want to do this for odd reasons or self-harm reasons or under the impression that they might get paid for it. So I understand needing to weed out those. Um, but then it would, and it would never progress past that. Despite me following up with phone calls and emails, it just, it just died in the water. And I got really frustrated because I had this feeling of like, I am literally trying to give you my organ and you're not helping me do this. Why is this hard? Um, so I, I was really disheartened for many years and then, and then the pandemic hit and I thought, you know what, let's do this. Let's, let's go for you. Third time's the charm. And sure enough, Vile Cornell here in New York city, um, got their shit together and progressed me through the different stages. I, I had to, uh, so I did the medical history. They said, great, we were going to need a 24 hour urine sample from you. And I thought, 
What the hell is a 24-hour urine sample? That sounds deeply unpleasant. And it was. It was deeply unpleasant. So basically what happens is you, um, they give you a jug, big yellow jug, and a little, what do I even call it? It's like a little insert you put underneath the rim of your toilet bowl that catches your urine. Uh, this is only for women, or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, people with vaginas, uh, because if you are a person with a penis, you can just piss directly into the jug. If you are a person with a vagina, we don't have that great of aim. <laughs> so they give you this little uh, receptacle, I guess you can call it. It has a little sort of tapered end on it so that you can pour your urine into this gigantic jug. Uh, the jug has to stay refrigerated. So I put mine in opaque plastic bags. I was living with three guys at the time. I didn't tell any of them that I was doing this, which if any of them are listening now, sorry, guys, that's what the mystery thing was in the back of the fridge. Um, <laughs> Ay, pobrecitos. So uh, every time I urinated over the course of 24 hours, I had to put it into this jug, put the jug back into the refrigerator. Um, and yeah, once that 24 hours was up, I took it to a quest lab that I was assigned to here in New York City and just dropped it off. And then they, they drew some blood while they were there to do a full blood work panel and then sent those results over to Viola Cornell so that when I met with the social worker and the nephrologist, who is the person who handles kidneys, uh, and the the head of the surgical team, I, I met with like five different people over Zoom calls uh, over the course of about three months. And uh, they discussed the results with me and, and you know, uh, gave me basically the thumbs up after everything was was said and done. They did mention that they that there was a bit of an elevated protein presence in my urine, but they said that's probably due to just um, being a little bit dehydrated when I donated. So I had to do another urine sample, this time slightly more hydrated. The protein levels were fine and I was cleared. So I was finally cleared. This is this was exciting news. Um, and uh, I started, I decided that I wanted to do a series of Instagram stories to document um, my journey. And I did. So if anybody's interested, you can follow me at Barry Kealoha. That's B-A-R-R-I-E-K-E-A-L-O-H-A. It's in my stories under El Riñon Mas Chingon. Um, and I was brought in, uh, I, I did all of these, you know, Zoom meetings and they, they said, great, we can progress you to the next stage. So they brought me into the hospital and I went through just all of the tests. I had blood drawn from here and blood drawn from there. I had uh, a CT scan on my abdomen that involved getting um, uh, like iodine uh, contrast dye injected into my body. So if you're allergic to that, unfortunately, you're not a, a candidate to um, donate to the best of my knowledge. Do not quote me on that. But that was a very strange <laughs> situation. Uh, the upside of that is that the guy who was running the CT scanner was really, really hot. So shout out to you, hot dude from Vile Cornell Imaging Center. Um, yeah, x-ray, uh, chest x-ray, CT scan, blood work, and a meeting again, this time face to face with masks and everything and socially distanced um, with a social worker. And the social worker also needed to be set up with my own psychotherapist who is a saint of a human being i've been meeting with him for over a year now and i can i can say my life has changed significantly for the better so shout out to you tony patterson um 
So the social worker spoke with my therapist basically to make sure that I was mentally stable enough to to make an informed decision to be a kidney donor, to make sure that I wasn't doing this under duress or under the direction of anybody else. And also to make sure that, you know, post-op, that the operation wouldn't be so traumatizing that I would be unable to recover. And that is something that I discussed uh, while in the sessions with Tony. And he seemed to be of the opinion that I was a valid candidate for this, which he communicated to the social worker at Cornell. And uh, that's basically what she told me. And she just sort of went through the questions again and made sure that I had uh, a support system in place. And, you know, I've got my roommate to handle any sort of physical limitations that I might have. Made sure that I had health insurance, even though all of the tests and all of the procedures to donate are covered by either the recipient's insurance or the hospital. If there are any complications that arise that are not directly related to the donation, they are not responsible for it. So they had to make sure that I was I had some sort of medical coverage to cover any extraneous issues that might happen. And my Medicaid is valid through the end of May. Thank you to the pandemic for that one. Um, so I'm covered that that way. And they just went through all those different steps. And I thought, great. And so we, we set up a time to do the actual donation um, in, I think I was shooting for mid-November at the time. So this was all going down in like August, September. And then everything leading up to the 2020 presidential election started getting kicked up into fucking hyperdrive. And I was seeing... It it was horrifying. The idea that if Trump were to lose, there were so many of his supporters threatening civil war. Um, and then also even Biden's supporters, you know, if he lost the the threat of of violence and protests and uh, protests are fine. But I was I was genuinely concerned about my personal safety, even though I live in New York City, which is a bastion of democracy and not democracy, but Democrats at least. Um, but we were also considered an anarchist jurisdiction at the time, and I think we still are. So, you know, if you have an anarchist jurisdiction and everything is going to seed, then why not send in the fucking military? So I also suffer from anxiety and depression, in case you couldn't tell by now. So I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to put the donation on hold until after the election and see how things play out. So November 3rd rolls around and then we wait and we wait and we wait because all these states need to count their votes and I fully support that. Um, and as the results were rolling in, even when Biden was declared the winner, Trump refused to concede. And as of today, he has still not officially conceded the fucking election. It has been over a month. And he has well and truly lost. His lawsuits are being thrown out of court for lack of evidence. And he still has not conceded the election. <sighs> now, on the other hand, the reason why I have recently, literally as of two days ago, decided to re-up my donation schedule and said, let's shoot for the beginning, middle of January, is that... It seems that he's going out with a whimper rather than a scream. Toca madera. I hope to God that I am right about that because I do not want to be incapacitated should my personal safety come under threat. For whatever reason, regardless of where the violence comes from, 
if there is violence, I want to be able to run if I have to. So God willing, it will not come to that. As of December 7th, I feel reasonably sure that I can safely donate my kidney. Let's hope that that continues. So that was, uh, that was a big deciding factor in that. And, and to their credit, the coordinators of the donation center over at BioCornell were very understanding about that, um, but also very pleased when I reached out a couple days ago and said, let's go forward with this. So to wrap up this initial episode of, of my uh, non-directed kidney donation, um, I am looking at the beginning to the middle of January 2021 to donate my kidney. I am excited about it. This is something I've wanted to do for many years. Um, and obviously I'm a little nervous. I would be going under the knife. It's, it is an invasive procedure. I'm going to get a cool question mark shaped scar over my belly button for it. Um, but when all said and done, and, and this is a question that they, they ask you during the, um, the interview process, they said, if, if your recipient does not take the organ, if for whatever reason their body rejects it, and this does happen despite all of the testing that you go through to make sure that you have the best possible chance of donating a viable kidney to this person, it may, it may not take, and you can't re-donate that kidney. Once it's in somebody else, that's its final destination, and if it doesn't take, it gets thrown in the trash, and all of your everything was for nothing. And I said, well, I don't see it that way. The thing that, that really drives me and the reason why I wanted to do this is to give somebody hope. As somebody who is a dyed-in-the-wool nihilist and suffers from anxiety and depression, hope is a hard commodity to come by for me. And the idea of, of just imagining Whoever this person is that I end up donating to, whether it's a kid or somebody my age or somebody in their 60s or, or somebody even later in, in the you know, last maybe decade or so of their lives, when they get that call from their nephrologist saying, we found a match, my heart soars thinking about what a surge of hope that must give that person who has been waiting for, for an organ transplant to, to, to alleviate pain, to give them a second lease on life, to give them an opportunity to do things that they either had to give up or curtail because their kidney was getting in the way of that. Even just that burst of hope, to me, makes it worthwhile even if it doesn't take. Because for that moment, I helped give somebody else hope, which is a hard thing to find. So before I get too emotional, um, <laughs> I, I just wanted to give that context of why I'm doing this and why I want to document it. Because I think that there are a lot of people out there who may be in a similar situation to me where, you know, you're sort of financially and emotionally in a place that would allow you to have this kind of freedom to do this. Um, and I want to be very frank about the process and what it takes and what it takes out of you, literally and figuratively. Um, 
to to normalize it. Um, to to close out, I I'm going to call it a non-directed donation. There's another term for it. It's called an altruistic donation. And I don't particularly like using that, even though technically it is true. This is an altruistic action. I don't particularly like using that term because it feels a little too virtue signaling to me, even though that's not technically what it is. Um, I don't like calling it an altruistic donation because I don't want it to seem like I'm doing this for accolades or like karma points. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't mean to like gamify an organ donation. Um, so if anybody is curious why I'm using non-directed as opposed to altruistic, that's why. Um, on the other hand, the world needs more altruism. And it doesn't have to be donating your kidney. It could be the smallest thing. It could be helping, you know, a mom carry her, her stroller down the subway stairs. You can, you can make small differences in the lives of people that you will never know. You will never know their names. You will never know how your actions impacted them. And that's another thing with, with non-directed donation is it's secret. The, the donor or the recipient's identity is hidden from you unless they choose to disclose themselves. So you may never know who got your kidney. And if that's why you want to donate your kidney, then I hate to disappoint you, <laughs> but that's not the case. Um, obviously, if you're donating to a friend or a colleague, they know. But if you're doing a non-directed donation, you may never know the identity of the person you're helping. And as much as I would like to know who it is that gets my kidney, I do respect that, that barrier of secrecy. And I hope that whoever gets it chooses to identify themselves to me because I would love to know who my kidney buddy is. But at the end of the day, knowing that I can help somebody, that's what matters most to me. So I hope that you've enjoyed this first episode. Um, I will check back with you when I have more news to report, which will probably be in the next couple of weeks. And then we'll go on from there. Um, so if I don't see you before then, I hope that you all have a lovely holiday season. I know I certainly am. And uh, with, all, with all my love and light, see you next time. This is Barry K. Aloha for El Riñón Más Chingón. <laughs>